Good morning, everyone. This morning is our fourth Sunday of the month, and normally on the fourth Sunday of the month, we take a break from whatever teaching series we're working on, and we turn our attention to an issue from the discipline of Christian apologetics. Now, this month, it's also Mission Month, and so my challenge was to come up with a topic that would straddle apologetics <clears throat> and mission, and that wasn't really difficult because at its heart, Christian apologetics is being able to defend the faith, and we're not going to want to send anyone cross-culturally. In fact, we're not going to want to send anyone across the street, really, who isn't able to defend the faith. So with a plethora of potential topics available to me, the topic that I have chosen today is hell. Not because I enjoy talking on that topic, I don't think anyone does, but because I think we should, as Christians, talk about that topic. Now, I'm not sure if I remember ever having heard an entire message just on the topic of hell. Perhaps if you're from the generation before me, it might have been something that you heard regularly preached about. But it is rarely discussed in our small groups, and I can't recall ever having a recent conversation with Christian friends even on the topic. The fact is hell has fallen somewhat out of favour, and this has enormous ramifications on our desire to go and make disciples, and it also has enormous ramifications on the types of disciples that we will make. According to National Geographic, hell just isn't as popular as it used to be. Over the last 20 years, the number of Americans who even believe in hell has dropped from about 71% down to just 58%. That means just under half of all Americans don't believe that hell actually exists. Heaven, by contrast, is far more popular and among Christians, it remains almost universally accepted. Heaven and hell, they are equally abstract concepts to us, yet one we preach and teach and sing about and the other hardly gets a mention these days. Attend any funeral and you could be led to believe that everyone who dies goes to heaven and that what awaits them there is whatever their hearts desire. If they love football, then that's what they'll be doing in heaven. If they're into knitting or craft, then that's what they'll be doing in heaven. If they're an accountant, they'll be doing the books in heaven. We have all kinds of warped ideas about what heaven is like, but at least we're mostly on the same page that it actually exists. Most of us have at least some part within us that don't want to believe that heaven exists, or that hell exists. And that's understandable. Because to believe in hell is to believe or to imagine some of our loved ones in eternal torment. And no one wants to do that. Hell, for many Christians, is at best an uncomfortable subject. But at worst, it's downright embarrassing. If you're uncomfortable with the topic of hell, 
you're in good company. Theologian R.C. Sproul, when asked which doctrine he struggles the most with, gave a simple one-word answer, hell. The Bible teaches that God is love and yet those who reject him face an eternity of torment. How can a loving God send people to hell? This is the question that's on the lips of many of our families and our friends. And to be honest, it's a question that makes a lot of us squirm. And this is the question that we're going to deal with today. How can a loving God send people to hell? And for that matter, what are we to do about it? And we're going to begin first by addressing the hell part of that question because Whilst this might be an uncomfortable topic, what we believe about hell matters very much because it affects how we understand the gospel and it affects how we understand the very nature of God. Now, we know that hell is important because Jesus talked so much about it. More than any other person in the Bible, it was Jesus who talked about hell. And whilst we love to talk about heaven and how wonderful that will be and tend to underplay the reality of hell, Jesus did no such beating around the bush. He talked about hell more than he talked about heaven and his descriptions of hell are far more vivid than his descriptions of heaven. Jesus tells of a time when people will be separated like sheep and goats into two groups, one group to enter the kingdom prepared for them and the other banished to eternal fire. Elsewhere, Jesus describes hell as a fiery furnace, an unquenchable fire, a place of darkness and a place of eternal punishment. Hell, says Jesus, using imagery from Isaiah, is a place where the worm that consumes the dead doesn't die. It is a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, a place from which there is no return. What do you imagine when you hear those descriptions from Jesus? Judging by the number of fiery volcanoes with the name hell within their name, that's the popular image that we have of hell. Some of these volcanoes are called Hell's Gate, the gateway to hell, Hell's Doorway, the mouth of hell, just to name a few. The best known of these volcanoes is called the Gates of Hell and it's in Turkmenistan. It is a truly otherworldly place where the ground gives way to a, a cavernous gaseous crater from which flames leap and lava explodes into the air. Is that the type of thing you imagine when you think about hell? Perhaps those of you who are older, who predate the era when hell became an awkward or uncomfortable subject in Sunday school, can remember being told that those who failed to accept Christ would be burning in hell forever. And perhaps some of your earliest Christian encounters were something more like taking out fire insurance policy on your life rather than 
any kind of genuine commitment to Christ. I have a question for you. How can an unquenchable fire also be totally dark? Is it possible to light a flame and still be in complete darkness? These are both descriptions that Jesus used and yet they seem to be completely at odds with one another. How can this be? I think what we have here is a very clear hint that Jesus is not speaking in a purely physical sense. There's a bit more to it than just the physical. You see, throughout the Bible, flames are used figuratively to describe the judgment of God. We see statements like this one from Paul to the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians 1, 5 to 7. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right. And as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in a blazing fire with his powerful angels. The flames here are symbolic of Christ coming in judgment. As the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 66, 16, for the Lord will execute judgment by fire. In the same way, Hebrews 12, 29 describes God as a consuming fire. And no one imagines that this means that God is a literal fireball leaving scorched earth in his wake. Once again, it relates to that concept of judgment. It's a way of saying that he's a God of judgment. And in much the same way, darkness is used throughout the Bible to symbol everything that is not of God. Light symbolises God. 1 John 1.5, God is light, in him there is no darkness at all. The opposite of light is therefore where God is not, and that place is darkness. Jesus describes hell as a place of darkness simply because God is not there. So hell is being totally separated from God. What happens in hell? Well, Jesus says there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, traditionally, most of us would associate those images with the torment of being burnt alive in hell. And I think we've all seen movies or pictures depicting hell, showing people burning, reaching out, anguished looks on their faces, weeping, moaning, gnashing their teeth, perhaps tearing at their skin for a bit of extra effect or pulling their hair out. And we associate their weeping and their gnashing of teeth as some sort of natural response to the, the pain of being in eternal fire. But we need to be sure that this is what Jesus meant here. Weeping can convey all sorts of emotions and it does convey all sorts of emotions in the Bible. But gnashing of teeth elsewhere in the Bible 
isn't generally a response to pain. It seems to refer to anger. Job 16.9, Job's talking about God here. His anger has torn me and hunted me down. He has gnashed at me with his teeth. My adversary glares at me. Or Psalm 35.16, King David is referring to his own enemies. Like godless jesters, jesters at a feast, they gnash at me with their teeth. Or Acts 7.54, the Jews reacting to Stephen's testimony. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and they gnashed their teeth at him. So when we hear that there be weeping and gnashing of teeth in hell, we should not assume that this is because of some terrible torment from the fire. More likely this gnashing of teeth is an expression of anger, perhaps a result of their own disappointment in themselves perhaps the outworking of extreme regret or perhaps having got what they thought they wanted to be separate from God and realising that there's no way back, they realise that this isn't actually what they wanted at all but it's too late and so in anger they lash out. The word that Jesus frequently uses, in fact some 12 times for hell, is Gehenna. Gehenna is an actual place. It is the valley of Ben-Himon. Literally it is Gay Ben-Hinnom, which means valley of the sons of Hinnom. And later this was shortened to Gehenon, dropping the sons bit to be just the valley of Hinnom. And from Gehenom we get Gehenna. And this particular valley raises its ugly head in the book of Kings as the place where some Israelites would engage in idol worship, passing their children through fire to the Canaanite god Molech, while the priests of Molech banged on their drums to drown out the squeals of these children. So detestable was this practice in the eyes of God that he sends his word through the prophet Jeremiah that he will have no more of this place. He'll turn this valley into the valley of slaughter. Listen to what the prophet Jeremiah says, Jeremiah 7, 30 to 32. The people of Judah have done evil in my eyes, declares the Lord. They've set up their detestable idols in the house that bears my name and have defiled it. They've built the high places of Topeth in the valley of Ben-Hinmon, to burn their sons and daughters in fire. Something I did command, not command, nor did it enter my mind. So beware, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the people will no longer call it Topeth or the valley of Ben-Hinnon, but the valley of slaughter, for they will bury their dead in Topeth until there is no room. Now, you may have heard that Gehenna was a valley outside of Jerusalem used as a garbage dump and that it was perpetually on fire and that it was to this unclean place where rubbish and dead bodies smouldered that Jesus is referring. And that's a nice theory, one that has spread very widely. Trouble is, it's highly unlikely to be true. 
because of all the multitude of Christian writings and documents that we have, no reference is ever made of it until 1,200 years after the birth of Jesus. Nor has any archaeological evidence ever surfaced to say that this area was a smouldering garbage dump in the time of Jesus. So it seems most likely that it is to these twin Old Testament references for punishment of the wicked from Jeremiah and the passing through flames that Jesus has turned to when he's describing hell. It was a despicable place that God would have no part in. And his contemporaries would have known the history of this place. For them, no further explanation was necessary. Mention Gehenna and in the mind of the first century Jew, they would go straight to those images of punishment for the wicked and the passing through flames that was practised in that place. That's how Jesus described hell, a place of darkness because God's presence is not there, a place of punishment and passing through flames of judgment, a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, none of this is pretty. In fact, it's downright disturbing. And the question remains, if that was how Jesus described hell, how can a loving God send people there? Now, the way I want to tackle this question today is to look at a few of the assumptions that underlie that question. And the first of these is that love and hell are incompatible. It sounds obvious, doesn't it? Surely love cannot be compatible with what I've just described of hell. Well, that depends on your definition of love. And increasingly, our definition of love is dominated by feelings. We're either in love or we've fallen out of love. We equate love with feelings of euphoria, feelings of happiness, and we find all of that incompatible with the notion of hell. Well, that's the Hollywood definition of love. It's the teenage definition of love. It's the romantics definition of love. And it's a lopsided view of love. Ask any parent who's ever struggled with a teenage or adult child and their battles with mental illness or addiction or engaging in activities that are risky or self-destructive. Ask them. And the definition of love that they will give you, I'm sure, is very different to that Hollywood romantic definition of love. You'll get an answer, I suspect, that is much closer to the real thing. One John four eight tells us that love is one of the primary attributes of God, but it's not the only attribute of God. God is also merciful, and He is holy. And he is just. So on the one hand, we have his love and his mercy. And this is balanced by his holiness and justice. Love and mercy, holiness and justice. And the standards on both these sides of the scale are high. 
Because God is holy, he can't abide with sin, and yet we know that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so on the one hand, we find ourselves filthy compared to the high standard of God's holiness and condemned by his high standard of justice. Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. But on the other hand, God in his great mercy and love pleads with us to turn back. The prophet Ezekiel speaks these words on behalf of God. Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the sovereign Lord? Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent and live. Love and mercy justice and holiness, and they come together for us at the cross. Jesus Christ is love and mercy, justice and holiness fulfilled. For in him, God in his great mercy lavished his love on us by providing for us one who would take our place. By his death, Justice was delivered in the form of the wrath of God upon all of our sin, which Jesus bore for us. God is love and mercy, but he's also justice and holiness, and his ways are not our ways, and his standards are not our standards. So are love and hell incompatible? Can God really be loving if he doesn't save everyone and grant them all eternal happiness? I would argue only if you're working under the Hollywood definition for love and that falls a long way short of God's definition for love. Ultimately, we must let God be God instead of trying to drag him down from his lofty standards to our standards to fit within our limited definition of love. To focus only on the loving aspect of his character is really to create for ourselves an idol that we can worship rather than worshiping the one true God. The other assumption that forms part of our question, how can a loving God send people to hell is the sending part. The way the question is worded assumes that God is forcing people into hell, giving them no choice in the matter, which is about as far from the truth as you can get. In fact, the very fact that we're still waiting for Christ to return in judgment speaks not only to God's great love in continuing to withhold his wrath, but also to his great desire that as many as possible would choose to follow him. Because God is holy, sin must be paid for. Imagine you've committed some sort of crime and you've been arrested and an amount is set for your bail and your father, who is disgusted by whatever it is that you've done to find yourself in jail, comes and he offers to post bail for you. Now you can choose to accept that offer or you can choose to reject it. If you reject it, however, Either you must be able to pay the bail yourself 
or you must accept the punishment due to you and spend your time in jail. In the same way, if you reject your heavenly father's offer, either you must be able to pay for your sins yourself or you must accept the punishment due to you. The trouble is, option one, pay for your sins yourself, is impossible. No one could do that. So we're left only with option two, to accept the punishment due. So by rejecting the payment that Christ has made for our sins, we must accept that the, the only other viable alternative. And in doing so, we choose our final destination. God doesn't send anyone to hell, nor does he force anyone to follow him. He allows us to choose our final destination. Or as G.K. Chesterton puts it, hell is God's great complement to the reality of human freedom and the dignity of human choice. God doesn't send us to hell, nor does he force us to believe. So if God's not sending people to hell, but people are instead choosing to go, what type of people might we expect to find there? Who do you think's going there? Rapists, child abusers, murderers, cheats, thieves, they're all going, aren't they? That's what we want to believe hell is going to be made up of, rapists and child abusers and murderers and cheating thieves and the like. Listen to what Jesus says. Matthew 5, 22 to 23. You have heard it said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother, Raka, which is a term of contempt, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Jesus said that whoever calls his brother a fool will be in danger of hell. Wow. How's your relationship with your brothers and sisters? What about these words from the writer of the book of James? James 3.6, the tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life on fire and is itself set on fire by hell. Those that can't control their tongue in the context of James, especially those who are teachers of God's word, they could be hell bound also. Better work on reining our tongues in. Or what about this well-known teaching of Jesus where he uses the story of the separation of the sheep and the goats. On, the, on his right stand the sheep. And he says to them, come, you who are blessed, and take your inheritance. And he praises them for feeding him when he was hungry and giving him a drink when he was thirsty and clothing him when he was naked and inviting him in and looking after him and visiting him in prison. And they said, when did we do all these things? When did we see you hungry and thirsty and naked and in prison? And Jesus says to them, whenever you did it for the list of my brothers, you did it for me. And I think you know the rest of the story. He then turns to those on his left and says, depart from me, 
You who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepare for the devils and his angels. Why? Because they didn't do any of those things for him. And those on the left protest. But when did we so hungry and thirsty and sick and naked or in prison? And Jesus says, whenever you did not do it for the least of these, you did not do it for me. So along with those who tear down their brothers and sisters or those who can't control their tongues, we now add those who fail to help the poor. And all of a sudden, those people in danger of going to hell are looking less and less like your rapists, child abusers, murderers and the like, and more and more like your average everyday person on the street. Neither the sheep nor the goats thought they would be condemned to hell. I'm quite sure the goats probably thought they were good people too. They've never murdered, raped or abused anybody and they probably paid their taxes as well. But still it gets worse. This is a bit of a chamber of horrors we're going through today. Matthew 8.5, the story of the Roman centurion, a Gentile and a Roman who so impressed Jesus with his great faith because he believed that there was no need for Jesus to go and actually be present to heal his servant. If Jesus just said the word, that would be sufficient. And Jesus said in response to the great faith of that centurion, I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and take their places at the feast of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So according to Jesus, there will be many who think that they are already part of the kingdom of God on earth who will find themselves thrown out into the darkness of hell. You know, to sit and read through in one sitting everything that Jesus said about hell is a very sobering exercise. But it's one that, in my opinion, is very worthwhile. As Christians, we like to major on the love and the mercy. We talk about love, mercy, forgiveness and grace because these things we find to our liking and to the liking of our non-Christian friends. Holiness, justice, judgment and wrath, we're not so keen on those. But to ignore this part of the nature of God is to deny who God really is. And in doing so, we become what I would call marshmallow Christians. Soft, sweet, loved by everybody, but of limited substance. Everyone knows that a diet of marshmallows is not good for anybody. And don't get me wrong, I like marshmallows. My husband makes the best winter hot chocolates with a few melted marshmallows on top. Delicious. But there's a time and a place for marshmallows. Hot chocolates on a winter night, on a stick around the campfire, perhaps the occasional baking project and, you know, maybe if you're a diabetic on the verge of slipping into a, a low-glucose diabetic coma, then a marshmallow could be a lifesaver. But of themselves, they're not a healthy, balanced diet and we all know it. And neither can we be healthy, balanced Christians if we accept only those characteristics of God that we find to our liking and we ignore or underplay the rest. 
Love and mercy, holiness and justice, this is our God. So what are we to do about all of this? You know, I've had my moments when the thought of anyone going to hell was was overwhelming. I can remember when the shopping centre just up the road here was completely renovated and rebuilt. And, you know, it used to be so simple. It was Myers at one end and Kmart and Coles at the other and you walked straight up and down the middle. You couldn't get lost. And I liked it back then. And then it was redeveloped and became this enormous, cavernous sort of city of of shops. And I remember going in there for the first time after it was redeveloped and looking round and it was just before Christmas and everything just seemed so opulent. There was this huge staircase and these giant Christmas decorations hanging from the roof and there was this Christmas tree and it stretched from the bottom floor through the middle floor right up to the top floor. And I stopped to look at this Christmas tree. And below me, looking over the balcony, was this river of people walking by doing their Christmas shopping. And all around me, people were jostling each other. And I could feel this wave of panic building up in in me, overwhelming me, because I suddenly had these thoughts, how many of these people are going to be in heaven and how many of them will find themselves in hell. And so I made a hasty exit. What what is our correct response in this type of situation? And we're going to finish up this morning with some wise advice from two giants of the Christian faith who I think can help us put this all in perspective, Peter and Paul. 2 Peter 3.11 Peter has just finished explaining about the judgment that will come when the Lord returns. And he explains to his readers what that's going to be like. And then he says, since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives. In other words, let's not ignore the reality of hell but allow the knowledge of it to spur us on to lead the kind of lives that will make others take notice and change their eternal destinies. We must allow Jesus to deal with our sin and we must work at mending the broken relationships in our life. We must reign in our tongue, we must help the poor and we must be obviously different to the outside world in the way that we live. Paul's words are even more shocking and remarkable. Romans 9, 2 to 3, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Cursed and cut off from Christ. That sounds a lot like our description of hell today, doesn't it? Yet Paul wished he could take it on behalf of the unsaved of Israel. Such was his great love for them. Paul had God's love for people, but he also knew and he understood their destiny without Christ 
and it compelled him to bring them to Christ. As we come towards the end of Mission Month, towards the end of May, may we have that same love and that same sense of urgency compelling us to go and make disciples. Will you join me in prayer? Father God, whether you lead us across the world or across the street, your command has always been to go and make disciples and that's something that we want to do well. We don't want to be marshmallows on your mission field, pleasant and sweet but having little substance. Lord, may this reminder from your word this morning grow in us a great love for all people and compel us and drive us and fill us with a great urgency to bring them to Christ, that they too may spend their eternal destiny in your presence. Amen. May you grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Saviour, Jesus Christ. To him be all the glory and honour forever. Amen.